Good evening and welcome. The program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio 2XX FM 98.3. I'm Sophie Singh and it's wonderful to have your company. On Subject ACT we bring you stories connecting with our local Canberra community and beyond, exploring current and community affairs from a curious and informed perspective, affairs with a global dimension. For our regular listeners of Subject ACT, you'll know that I have a particular passion for the rights of people seeking asylum. Tonight's story shines a spotlight on the lengthy and often murky bureaucratic processes that people seeking asylum have to navigate, often without much support. Ring-a-Rosies, a familiar rhyme for perhaps all of us that brings back memories of childhood and innocence, the playfulness of kids just being kids. That right of play is something that we all want for the children in our community. But the voices that we heard tonight playing Ring-a-Ring-a-Rosie are those of two little girls who were not being given that right. Instead, five-year-old Kopika and her little sister Tanika are, with their mum Priya and their dad Nadez, prisoners in the Christmas Island Detention Centre. This family has now been locked up in immigration detention for more than two years. The process that the Home Affairs and Immigration Departments use for assessing claims for asylum often take many years, while people wait in limbo. Even if a protection visa is granted, this is often a temporary visa, so people still have uncertainty hanging over their heads. Since 2013, the process has become even more difficult as government assistance to those seeking asylum has been withdrawn along with the meagre financial support. Tonight, migration agent Vanessa Byrne is speaking about the process and the damaging impact that it is having on people who simply sought safety in Australia and the opportunity to rebuild their lives. Vanessa was speaking at a public meeting held in Canberra last October titled Sri Lanka to Australia from Persecution to Detention, hosted by the Refugee Action Campaign. I've been um, registered since 2005 and um, in my early days I remember I was involved in the, the first TPV regime. It was my first introduction to asylum seeker work. And then it was 2009 when the boat started arriving that my work almost was full time just on asylum seekers coming to buy boats. So I spent a lot of time on Christmas Island and like I said various detention centres around Australia. Between sort of 2009 up until the introduction of the um, Migration and Maritime Legislation Amendment um, Act. Asylum seekers had representation through a government-funded scheme called IAAAS, which um, stood for Immigration Advice and Application Assistance. So for asylum seekers who came by boat, they were appointed um, representation for the primary stage, which is preparing the application, attending the interview with the department. Back in the early stages, the actual department would go to the detention centres, we would all be there on what we called task forces, spend a couple of weeks in the detention centre, preparing the applications, attending the interviews. And for those asylum seekers, initially they didn't have access to appeals at the Refugee Review Tribunal, they had independent merit review, the reviewers would go to the detention centres and do the interviews. But they had funded assistance through that whole process. 
In 2013, I think it was that Archibald then was stopped for asylum seekers, came by boat, and so that made things a lot harder going forward. And we hear the term a lot out there about illegal maritime arrivals. Um, as you probably know, it's not illegal to seek asylum, but it's not actually legal to refer to people as illegal maritime arrivals. The Migration Act uh, actually refers to them as unauthorised maritime arrivals. That's the correct definition for someone who came by boat on an excised offshore location. So big changes came through the Migration and Maritime Powers Legislation Amendment resolving the Asylum Legacy Caseload Act of 2014. It was always uh, the Coalition's plan to reintroduce temporary protection visas. They had a, a little go at it when they first got in that was disallowed. They did grant a few temporary protection visas. I think it was like under 100. Uh, Greens and Labor disallowed that. So then they had to wait for a whole new Senate to come in before they, this new Act could come into place. It really took people like Clive Palmer, Ricky Muir from the Motoring Car Thuds Party. They were the people who really were instrumental in getting this Act approved. And there were quite a lot of things that this Act embodied. It was not just about uh, TPVs, but the main part was the reintroductions of temporary protection visas. The idea behind that was if you're seeking protection, we'll give you protection for those who are recognised as a refugee on a temporary measure. But you might have to, you know, every so many years reapply for that, look at whether the situation in your country has changed or not. The actual merits review. We got to the point where asylum seekers could access the Refugee Review Tribunal, but now with this new Act, uh, that's not the case. They um, created a new body within the AAT uh, called the IAA, which is the Immigration Assessment Authority. The Act also strengthened removal powers. It also removed most of the reference to the Refugee Convention from the Migration Act and codified that interpretation. It also clarified status of children born to asylum seekers in Australia and offshore processing countries. So they basically born, taken their parents' visa status. And it also strengthened um, powers to stop and redirect boats at sea. So we know that there's around 30, you get sort of mixed figures, around 30 to 31,000 people who are basically part of that legacy caseload. Some of those people had already been in the whole migration system, already lodged applications, thinking they're on a pathway to permanent residency. But through this new Act, those people with those unfinalised applications were deemed to have then made an application for a temporary protection visa. These people are still hurting. They've got people who came on the same boat as them and might be citizens, whereas they are possibly still waiting for a new application to be assessed. But it's, it's, very, it's very hard to explain why that is for them. That part of the cohort, you know, it's about 7,000 people, I believe, who were already in the process. But then there was something like 23,000 or 25,000. You get different figures wherever you look, who came by boat basically from August 2012 up until January 2014. So they're the group who is really now subject to this whole temporary protection regime. This group of people, they couldn't actually apply for a visa. If you came by boat, you can't apply for a visa unless the minister personally lifts what we call the bar to make an application. And it's at the minister's discretion what visa you can apply for. So even originally, to get out of detention, the minister must allow for that to happen, then to get into the community. This group of people have been waiting for the Senate to change, the temporary protection visas to be introduced, and in that meantime, a lot of them were released into the community, but they weren't allowed to work. They were given SRSS payments, which is something like 75% of a new start allowance, so it's not a lot of money to survive, 
these people who wanted to be able to work for their own sanity and just to contribute, but they weren't allowed to. Even to get a bridging visa or to get out of detention, they still had to sign uh, what's regarded as a code of behaviour. It's quite a derogatory sort of thing that they had to sign. You wouldn't get any other migrant having to sign such an onus. You know, they've got to say that they must not disobey Australian laws, must cooperate with all lawful instructions given by police and other government officials, must not make sexual contact with another person without that person's consent, regardless of their age, must not take part or get involved in any kind of criminal behaviour, must not harass, intimidate or bully another person, and it goes on. So things like this, I've seen people with even uh, traffic offences who have then been put back in detention, seen to have breached that code of behaviour. Very difficult times when all of that was happening. It wasn't until about 2015 or maybe late 14 that people were actually allowed to start, were being invited to apply for a protection visa. Initially there was only the one, the temporary protection visa, but not long after the bar lift they introduced the CHEV visa, which is the Safe Haven Enterprise visa. That visa, I kind of call it the Clive Palmer visa. In order for Clive to sort of agree to the, the temporary protection visas and the, the legacy bill, he wanted to get asylum seekers moving and working in regional areas. If he had that sort of support, he was then going to go with the Senate. So CHEV visa was hastily put together. The difference between the TPV and the CHEV is the TPV is for three years, the CHEV is for five years. So the TPV, once that's expired, you can only apply for another TPV or a CHEV visa. The CHEV visa itself, once that's expired, and the first lot of CHEVs won't start expiring until October 2020, but once that expires, if the person who's the applicant holder, if they've been working or studying in a regional part of Australia for three and a half years of that five-year visa duration, haven't been accessing Centrelink payments like special benefits, there are some family benefits and things they can access, then instead of applying for another CHEV visa, they might be able to apply for another visa if they're eligible. The other visas could be skilled migration, business visas, if there's an employer who wants to sponsor them. Some people might be in a genuine relationship with an Australian, they could perhaps apply for a partner visa. Canberra or ACT is a regional area, and so we are getting a lot of people moving here for this reason. But the reality is, for a lot of CHEV holders, is that they won't be eligible. Their language their skills, their work experience is still not at that level. We're talking about asylum seekers who are denied you know, basic education and you know, work experience in their countries. <laughs> They're a bit behind other skilled migrants that we have that they're competing for the same visa places as well. So there's a lot of despair in the community about this. What do they do once their CHEV is expired? For a lot of people, they'll just have to reapply for another CHEV. But the reason permanent residency is so important to a lot of these asylum seekers, well, there's many reasons, but there's certainly a lot of people who've come here without their family. I know many men who are here, their wives and kids might be still back in Afghanistan. And the only way that they can sponsor them to get a permanent visa, once they've been um, holding that permanent visa, then they can apply for citizenship. Once they're a citizen, then they can apply for a partner visa. And bring the kids. Some people will be looking at a minimum, maybe of 15 years, till they reunite with their wife and kids. A lot of those kids will be too old to even be included in that application. But the despair out there is just, it's real, it's awful, that we have this system of no permanency for these people who are here trying to do the right thing by working or studying, contributing, but they've got no positive outlook while being here. If you've just tuned in, 
The program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XX FM 98.3. I'm Sophie Singh and tonight we're hearing from Vanessa Byrne. Vanessa is a migration agent who has worked for many years with people seeking asylum, having to find their way through the opaque processing system to have their refugee claims assessed. Vanessa was speaking at a public meeting held in October last year. Now, I uh, should go back and talk a bit about the IAA. So the idea of the IAA is part of that fast-track discussion. The idea is that the Minister will refer matters for review that have been uh, refused by the Department. The IAA, as I mentioned earlier, sits within the AAT, but it's an independent sort of area. But the objective of the IAA is to have a, a limited review that is efficient and quick, whereas the AAT Refugee Division... Their objective is to have independent, fair, just, economical, informal and quick review. So the IA are just basically assessing papers. You can't introduce new information unless you've got really good reasons for doing so. Submissions, if we want to write a submission on behalf of our client, it's limited to five pages and that's single-sided. <laughs> we try double-sided, it doesn't work. So it's, it's a very difficult process. Whereas if you go to the tribunal, the refugee division, you'll have a member assigned, you'll have a hearing. It's a lot more practical and had better success rates compared to the IAA. The asylum seekers for this legacy caseload, only a small percentage of them had representation. There was a scheme that was called PACE. It stands for Primary Application Information Service. I was very fortunate to be working for one of the only two organisations in Australia who had that government contract to assist the PACE applications. I can't remember whether it's about 5% of that 30,000 who got that assistance and they had to be referred by welfare organisations. They, they were deemed so vulnerable that they needed that assistance. Unaccompanied minors, people in detention were also referred into PACE. Uh, but it was still a lot of people out there without representation. And it's a really difficult process, putting a protection visa application together. You know, having done this for so many years, when I first started, you know, initially going to Christmas Island, would be doing three applications a day. It was really exhausting. You might be working long hours, but you could do it. But the change that um, I personally experienced with the PACE applications, uh, you could spend a good day or more with just one client because there's so much time that's lapsed. They've been sitting in Australia for so many years. You know, even to just recount from what detention centre they moved to the next detention centre, where they've been living. They were already burnt out before we even started. They, they've been living here for years, thinking initially they might be on, applying for permanent residency, they're not. But they're always living with the threat as well of being sent to a regional processing countries, Papua New Guinea or Nauru. There was so much going on that for them to even engage with the process, it took a long time. Uh, we had a small percentage of these 30,000 who had PACE assistance, but the majority were left to lodge their own protection visa applications. Their applications that are in English, it's not their language. It wasn't until really the end of the piece, before that October deadline, the department started looking at, it's like, oh, we still haven't, you know, got a lot of applications for Rohingyas, for instance. So they decided that they'll allow this group to have access to an interpreter for two hours to help them. Two hours is really a lot. As you know, like I'm saying, it would take me a good day just to do an application for someone, and that's having a lot of experience in doing that. The statement has to be detailed. It has to put all your claims up front at the beginning. So it's been really difficult. Very slow moving for people to lodge their applications. And then there was a cut-off date of October 2017. And um, my recollection of that time, there were only a few people by that point who didn't lodge. 
So it was an amazing turnover. There's been some amazing organisations, you know, like Real and Racks and Asylum Seeker Resource Centre who've used volunteers to assist where they can, but they can't reach everyone. There's so many people who've lodged applications themselves that just aren't, that make it very difficult for them to, to really engage and understand the process and for case officers even to decipher their application as well. But the department may not actually finish this caseload until end of next year. So it's, it's a long, drawn-out process. So many years still of people waiting. So people who have held temporary protection visas have been expiring. They're now waiting again. They might be waiting another year till it even gets looked at. It's very upsetting for these people that the process is so slow. The department, you know, is just so under-resourced to deal with all these applications. They've lost a lot of staff. There's been reports about the movements and certain people have left. You know, experienced case officers are no longer there. It's a very slow, frustrating process and, and there's not any sort of light at the end of this. You get your chev, but then it's like, what next? Can I get permanent residency? Well, it's very difficult. And there's always these deterrents, you know, such as oh, saying you need to be a citizen in order to do a partner visa. That's not the case for anyone else. Uh, but there's this direction number 80, which the Minister has directed that for people who came unauthorised maritime arrivals or unauthorised air arrivals, they can lodge a partner visa application, but it just sits at the bottom of a queue. It won't be looked at or processed by the different posts around the world until they have informed that department that there's been a change of circumstance in the sense that they've got citizenship. Then that goes into the queue and starts, and the partner visa, the applications that are quite astronomical, how many are in the queue at the moment anyway. And citizenship's really difficult as well. I think there's been about 250,000 applications still waiting to process there. So every step they take, there's almost a brick wall of just lengthy waiting times as well. It's very frustrating. I was looking um, just at figures about Christmas Island and the costs. So far it's cost $27 million this year on Christmas Island. And I was looking at the costs 2013, the last year we had IAAAS, that was just under, that was about $24 million that was spent on legal assistance to, to thousands and thousands and thousands of asylum seekers. You know, we got four people on Christmas Island, that expense. You know, that money could be better spent as we can all probably provide many areas. And I don't know their personal inside outs of their application, but this whole process would be such a stressful, emotionally draining process from the moment they arrived here. One of the first questions is, why can't you go to Nauru or Manus? You've got to argue that yourself. But they still always had that threat that they still might be taken there anyway. Then being in detention and being released in the community, not being able to work, to get work rights, they could only grant so many bridging visas with work rights at a time. People had to um, even be administratively detained, so people would actually go to an immigration office and be locked in a room waiting for the minister in Canberra to literally grant that bridging visa, then they can be released from detention. Then it was, you know, how are we going to do an application? We've got no representation. Where do we find it? Who's going to help us? Join the waiting list for those really overstretched pro bono centres and then either get a grant and then you're still waiting you know, that five years if you're in a chef or if you're not successful it's a whole IAA process. What we're finding now is the Federal Circuit Court, the amount of appeals from this group is now clogging up the courts as well and another further dimension that they've got to go through. You can find a lot of information out there on this whole caseload, um, including in the department's website. They provide statistics 
I think it's every month or every second month, I'm not sure. So they'll provide reports on the processing status and outcome. So that's an interesting resource if you're interested. So as soon as you go onto the immigration website, just go click onto the top left-hand corner and they'll have reports, publications, statistics, and you'll find a lot more information literally on the cases they have on hand, grants, countries, so on. So it's quite a good resource if you're interested. Other places like the Refugee Council, uh, the Cowdor Centre, they've got a lot of fact sheets about this whole history of the last few years. So they're really uh, great resources as well if you wanted to find some more information yourself. And that was migration agent Vanessa Byrne providing a small window into the process that people seeking asylum have to endure to have their refugee claims assessed. This process takes many years with people living with uncertainty and the fear of being forced back to the places from which they have fled. We started the program tonight with the family that is being held in the Christmas Island Detention Centre and I want to go back to that family to wrap up tonight's program. Last week, Kopika turned five. This is the third birthday that she has spent in detention. Her dear friends in Biloela and beyond held a virtual birthday party for Kopika and were able to speak with her via Priya's phone. For people trapped in immigration detention, their phones are the only connections that they have to family, to friends, to advocates and their legal representatives. This is even more so now that visits to detention centres have been stopped with the COVID-19 crisis. In this context, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton has moved to reintroduce legislation that will, if passed, enable Border Force Guards to take away the phones of people in detention, leaving them even more isolated. The Morrison government has moved before to prevent public scrutiny of the conditions for people being held in immigration detention. And irrespective of the government's motivations in reintroducing this legislation, the effect would be to further silence the voices of those that Peter Dutton's government continues to imprison. And that brings us to the end of tonight's program. I hope you've enjoyed it. Tune in to Subject ACT next Tuesday night at 6.30 and every Tuesday. If you can't tune in, you can always stream us live or on demand at the 2XX website. Just go to 2XXFM.org.au. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week.